Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. On November 5th, 2017, at the National Gallery of Art, Jed Pearl joins Alexander S.C. Rower to discuss the newly published Calder, The Conquest of Time, the Early Years, 1898 to 1940. This first biography of Alexander Calder, one of the most beloved and widely admired artists of the 20th century, is based on unprecedented access to his letters and papers, as well as scores of interviews. Born in 1898 into a family of artists, Calder forged important friendships in adulthood with artists including Georges Braque, Marcel Duchamp, Jean Miro, and Piet Mondrian. Calder, The Conquest of Time, moves from his early studies in engineering to his first artistic triumphs in Paris in the late 1920s, to his emergence as a leader in the international abstract avant-garde, and to his marriage in 1931 to the free-spirited Louisa James. The biography also sheds new light on Calder's lifelong interest in dance, theater, and performance, ranging from the Cirque Calder, the theatrical event which became his calling card in Bohemian Paris, to collaborations with the choreographer Martha Graham and the composer Virgil Thompson. Good afternoon. Hi, Jed. <laughs> Hi, Sandy. Jed and I have done um, six so far. Six, this is number seven? Yeah. We started in London a few weeks ago. Um, and these talks are kind of wide-ranging, um, and they're not scripted. Totally as you, unscripted. As you can tell. Um, and we, we, um, we like to talk about Calder. Sometimes I interrupt him to correct him. Um, it happens. Sometimes he interrupts me because I'm being too long-winded or something. It happens. It does. Um, so where do you want to start? I was just up at the tower looking at the absolutely astonishing group of works by Calder you have here. Uh, and the thing that strikes me up there is the range of what your grandfather did. Um, works going from the late 1920s uh, to the 1970s. Uh, there are works without, which are uh, aesthetically, purely abstract. There are works uh, which are austere. There are works which are almost Baroque, maybe even almost Rococo. There are figurative elements, sometimes mixed with abstract elements. And this, uh, richness in Calder, this almost profligate imagination, uh, is part of what I absolutely love about the man and part of what's made it so great uh, to work. Now, I, I, I started on this project with Sandy, uh, started working on Calder's biography nine years ago. Um, and part of what has made it so continuously interesting and fertile is that there are all these different sides to the work, which I think reflect all the different sides of the man's imagination. And you know the difference between Rococo and Baroque, which is <laughs> fantastic. You know, what, what Harry did up there in the gallery um, is something quite unusual because a lot of museums wouldn't do that. What he's done is tried to give a broad spectrum of Calder's output. Yeah. And that's why the things that we lent to the, the gallery, um, to the tower, um, were so specifically chosen by, chosen by Harry to tell a story. So you can go through and you can enjoy Calder you know, for a few minutes, or you could spend three hours there or more going through and getting kind of a, a, a life treatise um, yeah. through that, which is what your book, yeah. at least the first half so far, 
we'll see about the second half. I should, I should say one other amazing thing about Calder, which you, you can experience up there, is uh, the, the astonishing range of ideas about size and scale in his work, which are, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's another, it's very hard to think of other artists who, who manage that. And you have up there, I didn't even know you guys had loaned this here. I, when, when Calder's wife, Louisa, turned 43, he made for her for uh, her birthday. And the family, they, they, homemade presents were a big thing in the Calder family. Um, he, made, he, he took a cigar box and he made five of it, right? It's five tiny standing mobiles. They're this big. Um, and each of them has this kind of miraculous intricacy about it. And you go from that to a kind of very, uh, you know, kind of radically simplified, uh, I mean, you don't have really large things in that gallery, but a, a black stabile, maybe, what, eight feet, six feet high, um, which has a whole other internal sense of scale and a whole other idea about how the scale of the work and the size of the work relates to the human scale and size. Um, and your, your grandfather could go from these tiny intimate things. He's a master of the intimate, but also a master of the monumental, which is quite So why did he in 1948 make that cigar box? That's sort of an eternal question. Here, my grandmother, she turns 43. The year's 1948. It's a really key year yeah, yeah. because my grandfather starts being this truly internationally traveling artist. He gets these commissions all over the world. Um, they end up going to Brazil that year, um, having an incredible trip to Brazil really changes their lives. Mm. But he made this little miniature exhibition which travels and she can also have it with her when he's gone. When he's off traveling for some commission or something, she can have this miniature exhibition. She can unpack yeah. it, set it up, yeah. move it around, do whatever she wants yeah. with it. She yeah. can take it to her hotel room or she can have it on her nightstand at home um, either way. But what's fascinating is to bring it back in history because it's directly referencing Marcel Duchamp's miniature um, traveling exhibition, right? His right. and valise, all right. these little miniature right. Right. sculptures right. of right. all of his greatest hits, right. Right. which of course in itself is referencing Calder's miniature circus. Right, so um, we, we think, so we can't there's all it, of this, we, yeah. yeah, there's all of this um, history that we get to think about just because it's here. Well, but that is, actually brings you, I mean, I'd say two things, I, I, very quickly, I think, to the question of what was Calder doing when he made this for Louise and um, for a 43rd, Birthday. I think one of the things is it is an extraordinary work. If you think about these tiny, elaborate things in this box, I think it's a work about, in part, about intimacy and a, and the nature of a deep love, where it's kind of a lot of the things in a deep emotional connection are. Sp speaking of love, love your microphone. A lot of a lot of things in a deep emotional connection are very very. Uh, they're unknown to others, they're secret, and I think there's that quality about it. But you also bring up in this whole question about uh, the portability of this object um, and how it connects with the tradition. Duchamp, um, I mean, Duchamp's valise was begun in Europe. I mean, this is a project that's, that spanned the Atlantic. He had people working on it for decades, literally, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and Calder's Circus, which started as one or two suitcases and ended up as five, I mean, it, Calder went back and forth and back and forth about, across the Atlantic, especially in the late 20s and early 30s with that suitcase, which brings you to this whole aspect of Calder's world, which is the international nature of 
the lives that he and his friends lived. And this is, I think, it's part of what makes the biography so rich. And it also, um, I, I mean, I was constantly kind of reminded as I was working on this, of, you know, we make such a fetish of our discover of globalization and the global now. But he, Calder and his cohort of artists and writers, uh, uh, and it was also political friends, friends in politics, writers in, in poli who, who wrote about politics, they had a profoundly international vision of the world. Um, the world Calder lived in in Paris, Calder was not an American in Paris, he was one of a wide a, a group and set of interlocking groups of people in Paris who were all um, from di mostly from different places. Even the French, the, the French men and women were very often not from Paris, and of course Paris is not France. Um, and Calder and his wife, who had lived in France as a girl, who uh, and his Calder's uh, father-in-law was a kind of offbeat leftist, moneyed leftist who was obsessed with the League of Nations in the early year in the teen after world in the years after World War One. There's this kind of international theme in in Calder's life, um, which is fascinating, which is not, which does not deny the sense of specificity in a place. So like Calder felt himself very much to be an American, but also very much to be part of this kind of international uh, cohort who were optimistic about the future of art and society. Um, and uh, close friends, for instance, Miro, who he first knows in Paris, and then they are friends in all kinds of different places. Again, Miro is very much a Catalonian, but he also experiences himself as having this kind of international uh, view of things. And it, 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 it all connects to that um, kind of optimism of the early years of the 20th century, um, uh, which was uh, dampened by World War I and then, uh, in some ways eradicated uh, by World War II. Well, wait a second, even before World War I, yeah. and this is, I think, for me personally, the great revelation of this book. So many people have this wrong um, conception that Calder was an engineer who then became an artist, which couldn't be further from the truth. The engineering played very little role in his, in his life as an artist. And maybe very late in his life when he's doing the monumental sculptures, did it play some sort of a role? But um, you've told this story about where Calder comes from, and you've pointed out to us that in Pasadena in California, when Calder's a boy, he's exposed to the arts and crafts movement. Right. And no one else has written that before. No one's explored it. No one's looked at it in any kind of depth. Um, what was going on when he was five and six yeah. and seven years old and what and who he was exposed to what he was exposed to the architecture the design the metalwork all that stuff mm. um, this kind of resurgence of the handmade at the time of the mechanization of the world right, right. is something that um, you describe so well in the book it becomes very very alive mm. and you have a real sensation that Calder's having his eyes opened by his parents, friends, and circumstances. But so talk I mean, a little the, bit about the that. Calder's parents were both artists. His father, uh, both his father and his paternal grandfather were very well-known public sculptors. His paternal grandfather, many of you know, spent 
decades uh, do, creating most of the uh, sculpture for the Philadelphia City Hall. His father, uh, Sterling, his grandfather was, was Mil Alexander Milne Calder. His father went by Sterling Calder and was a very, very well-known uh, public sculptor in the first quarter of the 20th century. Did one of the, uh, the uh, uh, sculptures of George Washington on Washington uh, the Arch in Washington Square Park in New York, uh, was the head of sculpture projects for the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco in the teens. Um, at Calder's mother, Nanette Letterer, maiden name uh, from a Jewish family in Milwaukee, Nanette Letterer Calder, was a very serious painter and a kind of painterly style. They were, the Calders were friends with people like John Sloan and Robert Henry. She Portraits were her main interest. Um, Calder's father got um, tuberculosis uh, when he was in, his, uh, in the early, around 1905, and the family ends up living in Pasadena for three years while he's at a point where he's not yet completely cured. He was completely cured. Um, and nobody's ever really dealt with this time. There's always been this idea, well, Calder was born in Philadelphia, as his father was, so that's end of story. Um, and I started kind of looking at Pasadena, and either at right at the end of the time in Pasadena, called as this very bright, precocious boy with the, in this artistic family, he does either right before leaving Pasadena, right after, does two tiny sheet metal brass sheet sculptures of animals out of this bent uh, sheet metal, um, which he thought were so important that one of them was included in his retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in 1943. And everybody's thought, oh, isn't this interesting? Well, I started kind of thinking about Pasadena, and Pasadena, some of you one of the international centers, it does get you back to this international theme, of the arts and crafts movement. It was one of the places in America where this movement that starts with Ruskin and William Morris uh, in France, which is, as Sandy said, a, a, re, uh, a rejection of the kind of suffocating nature of industrialization. Um, where people are trying to find a way back to the kind of immediacy of the handmade, um, wanting each object, you know, you don't, you don't mass produce chairs, you make them individually, each one has a slightly different quality, even if it's made from the same pattern. And it became clear to me that Calder, through his parents, who were friends with all these arts and crafts people, had probably gotten some guidance, or at least seen some of these people at work. And we've, you know, it's, it's maybe one degree of, you, we can't absolutely prove any of this. But it, it tells you something about how uh, Sandy's grandfather, Calder, started doing this, the, these little metal objects, but it also, has a kind of larger implication, which is you start to think about Calder. Some of you have seen photographs of him in his wonderful studio in Roxbury, Connecticut, uh, where, where everything is done artisanally. Everything is, is one-off. Everything is handmade. And I think you can make the argument that Calder's mature achievement is this kind of extraordinary, um, totally unexpected flowering of of this 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 kind of seed that begins for him in Pasadena in his encounters with the arts and crafts movement. And it also, the other interesting thing about this is one of the great mysteries that a lot of art historians have had trouble with is Calder arrives in Paris in 1926. He's only been really seriously pursuing art for three years. He's already 28. By the time he's in his early 30s, when he has his first show of abstract art in Paris at the Gallery Persier in 31, he is doing um, some of the most radically self-assured 
abstract sculpture that anybody has ever done. In a sense, the radical simplicity of that work has never been bettered. Um, and there's no trace of the provincial or the, um, you know, the sort of guy who's a little bit off his game or, or you know, small fish has moved into the big pond. There's no sense of that. And I think you have to go back to his family and the incredible sophistication of his parents and their world. And this is a world where things, issues like formalism, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're discussed. Um, we know that Calder's parents loved Oscar Wilde's writings about art, about aesthetics, which are some of the foundational texts of, of, of formalism. You know, Wilde makes the argument that a work of art has its own integrity. It doesn't matter if it's a, a face or a, who it's of, but works of art have their own formal character. And Calder was imbibing these ideas when he was 10 and 11, 12 years old. So then, when he gets to Paris, it's like, oh, okay, I get this, I understand it, and then he goes. Now, you've received a lot of um, incredibly positive criticism for this book. You've received, I don't know, I don't know how many people have written about your book for all kinds of uh, journals. Um, but there's been this one strange thing <laughs> that has really been perplexing to me, which is people have mentioned that you talk about people that you talk about people that Calder knew and he, his associates and his close friends and you tell the story of his life, but you also talk about people that Calder never met and they're perplexed by this. I'm not perplexed by it because I think you're, you're setting the stage and explaining this moment and this time and what culturally people are um, experiencing, thinking about what's the discussion going on and in, uh, at dinner tables and so forth. But what do you think about that? Well, let me answer that by backing up a little bit and say one of the, when I started working on this biography, I was, I actually told my editor, I'm going to see how it goes for a year, and I may um, bail, because I'd never done a project where there was a family and a foundation involved, and I, w I didn't know how that would be. Um, Very scary. <laughs> well, it was scary. <laughs> um, but as it's turned out, we too have had a really interesting dialogue about this. And this guy is like the most specific person about things. I mean, he will go on for 20 minutes about how two pieces of metal are attached to each other in one of Calder's work, which is really an interesting that issue. That doesn't sound like a compliment, but it is. No, it is. No, it's totally a compliment. <laughs> because, because the way things are, you know, a lot of people vaguely think, oh, this guy worked in metal. Everything must be welded. Well, in fact, Calder hardly, there are hardly any, there are some here and there, but they're basically Calder never welded pieces together. But he found during his life all these different ways of putting them together. And Sandy is wonderful at kind of elucidating these. And so Sandy is like the close up guy. And my fundamental impulse is to sort of go that way and like say, oh, gee, I read a memoir of some artist who was in Paris in the late 20s, and they said X, which I think may kind of give us a sense of the, uh, a kind of line of thinking at the time, which might then, if you kind of bring it back, tell us something about Calder. So actually, one of the really great things I think and I think you would agree, that's happened in our endless conversations over the years is um, Sandy's always forcing me to kind of like, um, you know, he's kind of the bullshit detector in a way I, I feel. Um, wait, wait, you can't say that at the National Gallery. No? Okay, no. well, I, I didn't, okay. Um, and, and, and I'm sort of pushing him, frankly, I'll be absolutely frank, because there's been so much baloney 
purveyed about Alexander Calder for 50 years. Sandy is sometimes in a kind of um, crouch position, defensive, because there's been so much stupid stuff. Um, and I've actually somebody said to you, look, I understand where you're coming from, but you know some of these connections out there have they're important. Um, so we've kind of had this great back and forth about all of this, and and frankly, I've sometimes you know in the middle of the night I'll I'll somehow find some connection or something. I think I think well this is a little bit far fetched, and I, I'll email something to Sandy and. Um, I'm waiting for him to say, no, Jed, you've really, you've gone off the deep end again. And then he'll say, that's it. And I'm like, if he says that. <laughs> this is, now he's be. emailing me at like 2.35 in the morning, right, yeah. and I'm writing back at 2.37, <laughs> just exactly. to be clear. So, but, but to sort of go back to your question, I mean, one of the things that's been, you know, reviews are interesting. Um, uh, you know, you work on something for a long time and the reviews come out. And I've realized, um, I thought, you know, I've never written a biography before. I, before. I like to write different kinds of books. I'm never gonna write a biography again, which is fine. I'm very happy doing that. Um, but I, you are, you're gonna write a second biography, a second volume to this one, right? Yeah, right. But I've turned okay. out, I haven't even told you about the, the various estates that have already asked me. To, well, like to, who? Schlemmer, Oscar Schlemmer. Oh, yeah. They want one, Baltus. The Baltus family wants me to do the correct, the bad biography. But that these are done. great artists. Yeah, but I'm not doing it again. Huh. Um, anyway. R Roman Schlemmer's a great friend of mine. You should, you should think about it. Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> But, but one of the things I've realized is uh, I've written a more kind of avant-garde biography than I thought I had because there's a tendency, and very wonderful biographers do this, there's a tendency to try to sort of knit everything together into a sort of single strand, forward flowing narrative strand. And there's a tendency to also, you want to have one explanation for things. Why did he become a kinetic artist? Why did he marry this woman, you know, Louisa? Um, and my sense of human nature and the imaginative life, I mean, I don't have an imaginative life like Alexander Calder, but my sense of these things is that, that the reasons are multiple um, for many things we do, and certainly the imaginative life is based on multiple uh, impacts and uh, affects. And what I've tried to do, and this seems to, um, to it seems to be unusual to, to people. Actually, the, the review in the Washington Post, which I think is out, apparently out today, we saw it a week or so ago. Um, I actually liked that review because one of the things, uh, I think it's a guy named Alexander Kafka, he, he says that I'm, he refers to the book as shaggy, which I kind of think is maybe true because it, I will, when I'm trying to figure out, well, how did this artist become the greatest kinetic artist of the 20th century? Um, I look in different directions. So there'll be these kind of circles within circles of kind of exploration. Well, if it's true that you've taken biography from the sort of mechanized form, what the critics are expecting, and returned it to the handmade, the arts and crafts form of biography, that's great, but that, that, that's a sad state of uh, contemporary biography, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, because what, what I've learned from your book, there, I've learned so much, everyone thinks I know everything there is to know about Calder, that's absurd, of course, but um, in reading the deep research that you've done, especially in this early period, there's, there's so much about the moment of Calder's life and his parents' lives mm -hmm. also that's really fascinating. Things that we look at, we look at Calder's parents as being sort of old-fashioned artists because um, they, they're making sort of, uh, you know, figurative work. 
And um, you, you open your eyes and you realize, wait, these are actually avant-garde artists right. working in their time. And then I'm reminded that my great-grandfather, he got in so much trouble for making sculpture that was really overtly um, so, sexual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, um, I mean, not by today's standards right. overtly yeah. sexual, but in those days, if you look back and see what these women are doing in the sculptures, they're doing stuff that's surprising. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting to see that in the teens, that Calder's father's doing that. When, when even in my family, no one really thought about that before. Well, I think partly, again, you know, sometimes I find when you're thinking about a, a biographical subject, you, you, you have to kind of think of it in either, you have to kind of bring it down to the basic and think about, well, your own sibling experiences or your own experience with parents. And I think one of the things, Calder is the son of a very, very famous artist, okay? And of two very opinionated artists, okay? I mean, they they had opinions about well, his work. Th that's where I got it from. What? I was wondering where I got right, it from. Yeah. And, and Calder, um, you know, he's making his way. He's a very smart guy who wants to make his own... Uh, place in the world. Um, his mother, who lived to be very, very old, lived with them in Connecticut in her later years. And you know, people would come to see his work, and she'd take them aside and say, you know, my husband was really the great Calder sculptor. <laughs> so you can imagine that at certain points, and Calder loved his parents. And when his mother died, he actually went to bed for three days. He was which is very unlike Calder, who was a kind of let's get on with it personality. But he truly grieved for his mother. But on the other hand, it's not hard to understand that he would have wanted to a little bit put them in the shadows at some point. You know what I mean? Like, okay, Dad, you were the most one of the most famous sculptors in America in 1920. This is my moment. And again, it's not that his parents weren't gracious and didn't celebrate his success, but I think partly what's happened in the last decade, many decades, is that in a way, his desire, Calder's desire, and the desire of those around him to sort of say, let's, okay, let's have the spotlight on him, not on dad, has kind of turned into a kind of rigid idea about who these people were. You know, it's like mom and dad are kind of pushed all the way in the background when it turns out they're, they're much more um, interesting. I mean, one of the, like, it's not a key discovery, but Calder's mother, in 1897, when she already had one child, and they were living, they had lived in, been in Paris uh, for a little bit earlier. They're back in Philadelphia. She was one of the founders of a feminist art club in Philadelphia. And among the founding members, she's one of a small group of women who were married. Most of the women involved with it initially were, were unmarried. So she's, I mean, she's a, a, I called his mother's a tough customer. In some ways, his personality comes more from her um, than from his father. Called his father was a kind of melancholy, uh, depressive kind of guy, especially, um, it may have been in a way underscored or, or uh, in, uh, by, by the, the whole experience of TB when he was a relatively young man. But he's a very, there's a darkness about him and often an inability to get things done. Whereas Calder seems to take care of it after Nanette, his mother, who's a very, uh, you know, kind of let's let's get on with it, kind of person. So the book is, um, I mean, the whole story split into right. two parts, yeah. and and yeah. I'm curious. You've spoken before about um, wishing it was one volume. Yeah. And I still don't really understand that argument because it's it's a big, heavy book, and it goes to 1940, right? The first. No, it can't. It absolutely can't be one volume. But one of the things that 
disturbs those of us who love Calder, who love all of Calder, is that there's grown up, again, in the last, well, it began in the last decades of his life, in the 1960s. There was an idea that there was an avant-garde Calder of the 1920s and 30s. And then after the war, when the, sort of the art boom starts and he begins making these large public works, there's a sort of popular Calder who's the guy who you imagine made the mobile over the kid's bed, though it's not, I don't think he ever made a mobile for over any kid's bed. But there's sort of, so there's sort of these two Calders and there's been this idea that the, the Calder of the 1960s and 70s is no longer a vanguard artist. And one of the things that initially had worried me about splitting it into two volumes was it like you've got you, you've got the, the avant-garde Calder and then the sort of establishment Calder or something, which is an idea I abhor. Um, but physically, we couldn't it couldn't be one volume. There was no way. Um, but one of the kind of interesting missions of Volume Two is going to be to deal with um, uh, how, with the fascinating story of how Calder becomes one of the most famous artists in the world. Uh, at the same time. Uh, carrying on with uh, what you might call his sort of program as an avant-gardist. And in fact, a lot of the very big things he does late in life are um, in some way or another fulfillments of kinds of ideas that he had in the 30s. He was dying in the 1930s to do huge sculpture, but there were no opportunities, or at least not that he was given. Um, so, so that's why I was, I mean, I, I, I see the life as having this kind of marvelous um, flow through quality. In fact, the very last lines of the book, I say that one of, um, one of the things that, you know, that, the, that, that the struggle, the great struggle of the later years for him and his wife, and he and his wife, Louise, had this fantastic marriage, and they were really, they were bedrock bohemians, absolutely. And to sustain that kind of life um, with, the, with the close friends, with the kind of simplicity of life amidst um, you know, these kind of big corporate and uh, government commissions, that's not that easy, but they, they did it. Um, and that's part of the story volume two. So how did you come on to 1940 being that split though? Because that's, that's really unclear. From, from my sense of his biography, I've not understood what 1940 means to you. Well, Sandy wanted three volumes or four volumes, you see. So he, he'll sometimes you know, send me texts. So, oh, but really shouldn't it stop in 1930? What, what would be your preferred? If well, we were 36, through? obviously. Okay, obviously, yeah. 30, 30, then when does volume three start? <laughs> Um, well, there's an argument for that. Let's see. Um, after the war, so 47. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 36 and 47 would be the cutoffs, the three volumes. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there, you know, look, there's no, you, well, you know how lives are, you know, like decades are, you know, it's like people try to end things a certain deck, you know, a certain style ends, you know, or like the sensibility of the 60s or, you know, which actually begins in 1966 and ends in 1972 or something. These things are always very difficult. My feeling is that by the end of volume one, um, and the last chapter of volume one is called The Classical Style, Calder has all the tools in his kind of formal imaginative toolbox at hand. All the, the kinds of elements uh, the vocabulary he's going to use uh, is there, um, and I th and what you I think which and then you have that what we think of as the kind of classic Calder mobile, this kind of horizontal spread of elements that begins to appear in the late 30s and 
around the years around 1940. And I talk a lot about the idea that this is a kind of a moment when he's kind of balancing all the forces in his work. I talk about the idea of a classical style. I talk about Charles Rosen's ideas about classical style music. This is the kind of thing that drive some of the reviewers crazy. Why are we talking about music or, or, or um, uh, or ideas about the classical style in the Renaissance, which I think are very helpful to try to understand what we're talking about here. But volume two begins in 1940. The Calder and his wife, who spent many years in France, in this international world, are back, have been back in America basically for seven years. And suddenly, of course, with uh, the rise of, the, with the, the arrival of World War II, not everybody, but a heck of a lot of the people they knew over there are suddenly in America. And they, they, they're sort of, in a way, there's a kind of reimagining of, uh, of, the, of the Parisian international world in America. Um, in 43, Calder has this big retrospective at the Museum of Monroe, which is a turning point in a sense, a pivot to this later public more public quality. He goes from being a kind of huge figure in the avant-garde in the 30s and early and 40s. The 43 show is a kind of pivot to the Calder of the later 50s and 60s. So it seemed like a good time, but I mean, it's interesting you say something like 37 to 40, um, whatever. I mean, because I think then your, your middle volume would in a sense be talking about what I would, that what I try to talk about at the end of volume one, the sense of somebody who's the master of all of his full language at that point, um, that it's all uh, it's all there. And one of the wonderful things about the later work um, is how he plays with it. And just one thing, you know, you have wonderful examples um, uh, up in the tower too of these uh, animals done in the seventies. You have smaller versions called critters and crinkles and animobiles, animals, where he returns to some of the kind of interests. I mean, he'd done animals all through his career. There are wonderful birds with, done with uh, old you know, t uh, coffee cans and beer cans all the way through. But there's a return to some of the, um, the fascination with animals of the 20s. But, but look carefully at them, and they'll be combined with elements which come straight from the abstract mobile. So it's, again, I mean, the kind of colloquial way would way of putting it would be he's mixing it up. But I think it's actually a kind of right at the end, there are a number of these kind of marvelous, very new bodies of work, which I frankly think in the kind of largeness of the adventure coming late, bear parallel with, with Matisse's cutouts, which is, a, which is another great artist at the end saying, well, I'm going to try something rather different. Um, so that's, th th there's a group right in the middle of the of Tower 2, which are uh, well, was, and there are larger versions of many of these. We probably yeah, are we question should, time, yeah. yeah. We know there are a few questions out there. I know we had a few earlier. Um, I see a few hands, go ahead, right here. Yeah, you. <laughs> I have a question that relates to color in uh, Paris. After the First World War, there was in the arts movement very much a strong focus on what I would say, some engineering building art, like Fernand Léger. Right. And so uh, I recall uh, George Antal with his uh, right. technique. How did that influence uh, Kohler being an engineer? Because here, I got Right. The, the question is about the, the interest in the mechanical and the engineered in uh, Parisian modernism after World War 
one? Would that be Leger um, and uh, others, um, Ballet Mécanique? Um, I, I think the, the whole question of Calder and the mechanical is a very, very interesting one. Um, and I, I think what you, what you have to under, uh, you, you have to understand is, I mean, the, uh, by, 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 by the time of World War I, I mean, mechanization of all kinds is, uh, it's, it's over, I mean, you're going from an agrarian society to, a, to an increasingly mechanized and industrial society. And artists take different views of this, okay? Um, and there is uh, a kind of fetishization. You see it among some of the, the futurists in, uh, in Italy. You see it among the Russian constructivists and supremacists. A fetishization of the, of the impersonal quality of the machine and the industrial. Um, Calder's interest in the mechanical is again, it goes back to the arts and crafts movement. He likes the idea of, of the, the mechanical thing, the moving thing, as having this personal, artisanal quality. Um, and it's actually, um, and he's in some ways in reaction against the, um, a lot of this thinking. He's friends with Leger, but, but he doesn't like the sleek slickness of, of the machine age is not to his taste. Um, there's something more of, of Leonardo da Vinci, of a Leonardo-esque kind of quality of the, the machine as a kind of extension of the, of the personal imagination. Um, well, Leisure was, Leisure was very much against the machine age himself. He thought it's anti-human. Right. I mean, the, the mechanization of how you kill human beings right, 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 was something right, that he was fighting right, against right, in his right, work. Right. But he did, sometimes there are works in which he show, has a taste for the sleekness of machines. I mean, when Calder showed his early um, ki kinetic works in Paris, some of which had cranks, some of which had um, uh, uh, engine, what do you call it? Motors. <laughs> well, motors, thank you. Um, uh, people were struck by the, um, the what I, I mean, the artisanal, the, the kind of uh, personal laboratory quality of it, okay? And and remember, this is already, we're in the back, the backdrop is Art Deco with its very slick, sleek kind of industrial forms. That is something that Calder is, a, is absolutely against. And, and in fact, there's a very interesting review of an early show in New York by Lewis Mumford, the great, so you know, great art critic, social critic, um, uh, and Mumford very much talks about Calder's work in terms of, I mean, he has interest, he has issues with Calder's work. He's not a huge fan, but he talks about in terms of this kind of very handmade, immediate, artisanal quality. Um, and, you know, Calder gives up on the motors, not completely, there are works from the later years of the motors, but he kind of makes jokes about the motors are hard to keep working, and there's a lot of, but also I think it, it reflects the fact that, um, uh, you know, when he moves more and more to the wind-driven or hand-pushed mobiles, again, again, I think that connects with uh, more th this this kind of skepticism about the industrial age. Well, Calder said, "Better a good sculpture than a good machine." Yeah. So, back way back there. Uh, would you explain your subtitle, "The Conquest of Time"? Uh, the question is what the subtitle, "The Conquest of Time." Uh, we had. 
I mean, I had had a terrible, I have to say I'm very good with titles, but I had absolutely abysmal time with this, with the subtitle. And uh, we kind of arrived at something that nobody was really happy with. And then this guy and I kind of had a, uh, we had a, we threw stuff around for a couple of hours. And uh, I think you said to me, what's the most important idea here? I said, time. And then I said, the conquest of time. I mean, Calder takes sculpture into the dimension of time, which some people thought was the fourth dimension. I mean, you know, you could think of the whole thing as painting is two-dimensional. You could think of sculpture, uh, the immobile sculpture, as taking the, the two dimensions of painting into the third dimension of space. And then you could think of the mobile as taking that into the fourth dimension of time. So Calder does, I mean, other people had done kinetic sculpture before him to some degree, but I think he does take sculpture into the dimension of time. So that's the subtitle. Way back there, yeah. Um, uh, that's difficult for me. Um, I talk about my grandfather um, in terms of really my expertise, which is his work. Um, Jed's become this wonderful biographer of Calder and knows much more about my grandfather's life than I do. Um, the sculpture is what fascinates me. Uh, but my grandfather was not what you expect him to be. So if, you, if you've seen motion picture of him, um, he seemed very jovial, lively, amusing, um, had been referred to as a ringmaster and things like that. He wasn't at all like that in his real life. Um, he was very serious. He worked in his studio every single day. He'd go out in the morning right after having a soft boiled egg and he'd work for hours by himself in complete silence, no music, no NPR playing. Um, and, and you know, these days artists have 50 uh, apprentices or, or assistants in the studio helping them make their work. My grandfather never had a single person help him make his work, except for, of course for the monumental sculpture that he had technicians employed. Um, so I, I think that's the best thing I can impart is that his sense of seriousness was much grander than his sense of play. But the sense of play is what people hear about or read about or is expressed by people writing about him, which is unfortunate because it takes away from um, really what he was like, really the, the deeper sense of what he was like. Here. Could you all hear that question? So his question, well, he had been to the Whitney Museum and seen Calder Hypermobility, a show that just closed in New York. And part of the aspect of the show um, were these art handlers that went through the exhibition on a time schedule and had this stick and could activate the mobiles and move them. And occasionally he noticed that some of these activations were kind of quote unquote herky jerky. 
and that the activators had said that's the way they had been taught. Now, you can't imagine that I taught anyone to move a mobile herky-jerky, could you? Um, no, that, you know, the, the greatest part of a mobile in motion is when it doesn't move. That's the beauty of it. So when you sense, as you were saying, um, when you observe a mobile at rest, and then it starts to move in the most curious and sometimes mysterious way. Now, of course, it's responding to, um, if you go up to the gallery up here, you'll see works moving. There's no activators there. Um, there, there are bodies, there's uh, humidity, there's our perspiration in the air, that all these things affect, all these unseen motions um, of molecules in the air affect the mobiles. Um, that's really where the poetry lies. And your personal experience, your one-on-one -on -one experience with that sculpture, as it's doing something that seems a little bit miraculous, is where Calder wants you to begin to experience what he's trying to communicate. So the Whitney show was really about um, trying to bring you and other people closer, and and yeah, I'm sure there were experiences that weren't that weren't ideal, um, but it was it was a great experiment for us. It's the very first time we've done a show where there were intentional activations throughout the time of the five months that show was up, um, and included in that pro program was the theater where we brought a singular work from the Calder Foundation for one hour, assembled it in front of an audience, and performed it, presented it, talked about it. Um, and then took it away again. And that we did over the whole four, four or five months. Um, I think I did it about 15 times. It was really a great, great experience to share that in a very um, intimate way towards what you were saying, getting towards the intimacy of the experience. I mean, the other thing which I just, just to add what Sandy said, um, the one that I have learned in these years uh, of working on this and being at the Calder Foundation, which has extraordinary collection of cultures and seeing things move is the range of kinds of movement in the in the in the kinetic works is astonishing they move in very different ways the kind of movement you're describing a kind of graceful uh, you know, sliding movement is one kind, but there are things that move like this, and you begin to understand that the size, the the, the shape of the elements, the size. Um, many mobiles have a lot of different thicknesses of wire in them, um, so that different parts will actually move at different speeds in different ways. Um, so there's a whole, uh, you know, this is a whole other domain. The, the movement itself has then many dozens of different of different qualities, which called it was very. Um, uh, I mean, these were very specific. He would he would put things together in a certain way to make them move in a certain way, um, and that's something that, alas, just uh, is is very hard to um, to grasp. Well, one more comment just on that, which is sometimes you'll be in a museum and you'll see a mobile and it's turning like a carcass in space. It's one fixed thing that happens to rotate. It's not actually moving; it's just rotating as as one object. Clearly something's wrong there. And often Calder's mobiles have been repainted over time and often the paint sticks all the elements together and it doesn't have the fluidity of motion. And this is one thing that we are very involved with with the museums around the world is to help them understand how these sculptures should be cared for and how to get them back into reactivation and um, get them to do what they're supposed to be doing. Another question? Well, um, to me, the most in incredible insight was what I 
mentioned, which was the arts and crafts movement in California and how densely um, described that moment was, I got to sense what it was like for my grandfather as a boy to experience um, the handmade. I mean, to think about a sheet of copper, which they use copper and sometimes brass in those days, and to hammer that into a form, a utilitarian form often, um, was really extraordinary. I'd never thought about that before. Your turn. This is, it's a, this is a really hard question for me to, to answer because frankly there have just been so many different kinds of things um, that have... Uh, uh, just one. <laughs> You're so... This is the way he is, you see? It's always like, you know, like... like <laughs> Well, I, I, I have to be nice to him to, for the next two years while he finishes book two, and then it's all... Then he'll turn on yeah. me. Yeah. Just a quick, uh, Way back there. I mean, to an astonish. It it certainly fits into the arts and crafts movement. And in the book, there's there's some com there's a comparison of a of a sort of circa 1900 watch fob from Massachusetts with some of the later Calder jewelry, which will kind of make your eyebrows go up. Um, uh, not, I, but again, it's not so much. It's not that that comparison. To, he, it's not that he saw that watch fob. I think that's completely puzzled. But the sense of of making something. Uh, of making jewelry uh, with your own hands. Um, I think, you know, Calder's parents also were very, they were collectors of Native American jewelry, baskets. They were very interested in this stuff. I think he grew up with that stuff. I think, though, you know, people, again, everybody always thinks of, oh, Calder, he had to go to Europe to learn everything. So people will um, suggest uh, that the interest in uh, African uh, things uh, was one of the influences, and so they'll compare an African necklace to a Calder necklace, and certainly that was a part of it. But again, he was seeing this stuff very early on. The jewelry, just to say a couple of things about jewelry, the jewelry begins as, um, I would say, as a kind of, uh, as part of Calder's extraordinary gift for friendship and connectedness to other people, okay? And actually that continues all through his life, that, that both for his wife, for his friends, for women who were perhaps lovers, to, to give a piece of jewelry, to, to make perhaps a pin with your initials, is again the extension of this extraordinary gift for friendship which Calder had, and that sense of family and, and, and friends as an extended family. He did also, especially in the late 30s and early 40s, when his sculpture sold almost not at all, okay? until there's sort of a breakthrough sometime, you want to say, the, you know, sometime in the 50s. But um, he had a couple of jewelry show, of shows of jewelry with a very interesting New York dealer named Marion Willard, who was also a great supporter of David Smith early in his career. And they had a couple of jewelry shows for the Christmas season. Um, the things that sold were like $15 and $20 cufflinks. Do you have your cufflinks on today? He has cufflinks on today, Calder cufflinks. Um, the bigger things, big necklaces and tiaras, which were $100, which is probably about, would be about $1,000 or $1,200 now, those didn't sell. Um, so there was, for a time, a kind of, um, uh, you know, there, there was an economic side to it. But the essential impulse 
would you say that's a fair? I mean, really, is it was a, it was just here's a man who can make things, um, and and Calder didn't think that a, that a necklace was a sculpture. You know, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. He, I think, he had a very clear sense of these different kinds of expressions that a man with his imaginative gifts could get involved with. But when he was making a necklace or a, a pin, that was a different thing than making a, a mobile. But but I think it's basically an extension of the gift of friendship. Okay, two more questions. One over here. Arrest that woman. Well, you know, Calder's sculptures were intended to be in your home. They weren't intended to be 15 in a room in a museum. These museums didn't exist in his lifetime. I mean, they did at the end of his life, of course. But he wasn't thinking about them. Um, you know, a lot of artists today make giant works of art they think are supposed to be in a museum. They can't possibly go in your house. Um, but so you have to, when, you're, when you go up to the gallery upstairs or back to the Hirshhorn, look at that mobile and think about it being at home, being in your house. Where would you hang it? How would you interact with it? How would it be? And if it hung there for three years in your living room, what would those experiences be like? So you'd see it in stillness, and the most remarkable experiences are you see it in stillness, you look away for three seconds, you look back and it's moved, but it's not moving again. It's gone from one static position to another and you haven't seen it move, and it's very confusing as this how, okay, if it sort of picks up speed and moves, that's normal, right? But when it's changed to position and has, is no longer moving, it's really a curious experience. And so he hypothesized you were gonna have these at home. He wasn't thinking about um, the guard keeping you, you know, 67 inches away from the mobile so that you can't, um, but, but people do terrible things in museums. I don't know if you know this. Um, I mean, so I know not a single person here would do anything you're not supposed to do in a museum, but can you imagine that people take the map um, for how to navigate a museum and they crumple up in a ball and throw it at Calder Mobile? Well, these things actually happen, it's terrible. Um, so the Whitney Show was an attempt to mitigate how do you preserve people's personal property at the same time share it with the world. And having these activators sometimes do it correctly and sometimes do it a little less correctly. Um, you know, the less correctly is a little unfortunate, but um, hopefully we'll engage museums more um, for, you know, in the future with how to present the work and how to give you that kind of sensation that Calder wanted you to have without blowing a fan at it and just having it spin around like this, like a top, because that's, of course, not at all the point. <laughs> yeah, things, things break all the time. Yeah, you've been waiting up there. Read the book. <laughs> uh, I mean, 
There were kinetic works before Calder, but yes, the I mean, it is Marcel Duchamp in Calder's studio in a house on the Rue de la Colonie in Paris, in that room, in that very room. Calder said, what should I call them when he was getting ready to first show moving works, and, call, and Duchamp said, call them mobiles. So yes, that, that does begin. Uh, uh, with with Calder and and just and if you ask about other innovations, I, the large scale abstract public sculpture, which we think of oh you know it's sort of become a yawn oh abstract you know large abstract public sculpture, Calder actually is uh, the key figure I would say in uh, in in the uh, the the beginnings the promotion and the uh, proliferation of that idea. And, and indeed, he was involved with some very tough fights in the 1960s, mind you, when public officials did not want a big abstract sculpture in public. They said, what's that? So that's actually another very major innovation. Now, we don't see that anymore because uh, you, know, you have Richard Serra, et cetera, who have really come in the wake of what he did. I mean, who are, are, are coming uh, uh, you, who build on, expand on, or, or, or speak to issues that he really defined in the 1960s and early 70s with the first group of major, totally abstract public sculptures. And on that note... Okay, we should leave it at that. Yes. Thank you all Thank for you coming much. today. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.